You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to Apple Insider Podcast. This week it is episode 159. We are so close to making 160. I don't know if we're going to do it, but I hope you'll join us for it. <laughs> I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is the inestimable, the inimitable, the unique Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you going? I'm so glad to be speaking to the one and only Neil Hughes. Are you? I am. <laughs> You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I look forward to this day every week. Yeah? I do. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You are really busy. You're hard to get a hold of. and I can be. I, I value this time. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoy it as well. This time that we have together really means a lot to me. So oh, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. On Saturday, we got a note from your favorite analyst and mine, Ming-Chi Kuo. Mm-hmm who thinks that the consumer demand for the the so-called 6.1-inch LCD iPhone is going to be so strong that it's going to completely outpace the two OLED models that are rumored. Yeah, I'm not really sure I fully understand this 6.1-inch model yet. I'm, I'm not sure what Apple is going to be doing with that phone. Uh, everything about it seems a little odd, doesn't it? It's an entry-level model, but it's still more expensive. Um, apparently, we're not going to get a, a new small phone this year, um, at least you know, in that 4.7-inch range uh, the iPhone 8 is. Um, this 6.1-inch model is going to replace it. And then if you want to get something a little more compact with the edge-to-edge display, you got to opt up for the iPhone 10 successor or whatever. Um, but basically, the, the, the logic behind it is that this 6.1-inch model is going to have an LCD display and not an OLED display, and it's going to have a few other things that will make it uh, more affordable. Uh, one of the claims that, that was out there was that it won't have 3D touch, which doesn't even make any sense. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens. Let me let me ask a few questions and, and make a few pieces of speculation that uh, I hope don't ruffle too many sure. feathers. So, first of all, we, we went on for months talking about how a $1,000 phone was a really expensive phone. And it, it very much clearly is if you have to pay for the phone out of pocket all up front, which is the case in some countries. But in, in the United States, and this is where a lot of the, the noise came from and the, the, you know, the, the going back and forth and, and talking about whether or not this is controversial, we have traditionally had subsidized phones. And when we haven't had subsidized phones, we've had phones that were on a pay as, you know, you pay over the month as a part of your monthly bill. And then when you complete your, your payment, that just part of your bill drops off. Mm-hmm. So we've always had ways of financing the phone to make it more affordable. And so some of that, that um, fear seems to be an overplayed, especially if the iPhone 10 was a successful selling phone, which it seems like it was from the earnings right. call. But at the same time, there is very much a consumer that wants to have a more affordable phone. And that consumer also likes having a very large phone, right? That's that's why the Samsung Note series stuff exists. Yeah, I mean the the, the industry has been it's partly what drove Apple to have a yeah. A large the market phone in the has first been place. trending in that direction for better or for worse for years now. So one of the ways that you get to a larger phone that is less expensive is by making it with an LCD part as opposed to the OLED part, which is harder and more expensive to get. But how do you differentiate, right? So, like like Apple has been differentiating the last few years by putting better features into the plus size model. Um, and then this year, they went with a smaller screen than the plus size model on the iPhone X, um, but squeezed in all the plus size features, including the dual cameras and all that. Um, but they also differentiated it by having the edge to edge display, no home button, completely new industrial design. 
So, you know, you got to remember that that's a very important thing to have in a product lineup. You have to be able to differentiate um, what each product offers, what it does, and they have to look distinct as well. So the thing that I would say to that is, yes, you want to differentiate so that your your customer knows exactly what they're choosing right. and why, right? And that Apple wants to have that differentiation to make it easier for that customer to choose and also because they like getting the additional margin off that $100 increase in price. Sure. Right? But they have other goals that aren't as simple as that, right? They they have goals like they want to replace Touch ID with Face ID as quickly as they can. And so they want all of their new models of phone to move over to Face ID. And so this is partly how, what has to happen. I mean, they still have to offer some phones with a home button. Okay, but those those phones are going to be your iPhone 7 right. and your iPhone 8, right? Those those phones, the iPhone 7 is hung around this year. Will the iPhone 7 hang around next year? Maybe not. Maybe the iPhone 8 hangs around next year and is your phone with a touch button. With a, yeah, with a I, th- I think that they're going to have to do something to keep around a model with a home button. I think that there is a certain segment of the market that will want that for years to come, I suspect. Great. You have two. You have an iPhone 8, an 8 Plus, and you have an iPhone SE. Right. Those three models have the home button. Buy one and be very happy. But if you want a new phone, a new this year phone, then you're going to get one with Face ID and you're going to get from the the 6.1, the 5.8, mm-hmm. and the 6.5. Yeah, I was uh, talking with a cab driver the other night who was uh, – he found out what I – he was asking me what I do for a living. And then when we talked about it, um, he was saying um, – that he tried the iPhone 10, but he had to return it because he just couldn't, it wasn't as efficient for him when he was driving around to switch between apps as it was to uh, double tap the home button. So, you know, you're going to have people like that that are going to be very resistant to change. Right. And and Apple's answer to that particular situation is, please don't use your right. phone while you drive. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Which is fair. Well, I mean, but- <laughs> that's obviously a bad example. I'm not encouraging people to use their phone while they drive, but, but yeah. No, no, no. But I people are going to be but- resistant. That's kind of what it is. Yes, it's difficult to switch apps with a, a touchscreen com- with a gesture as opposed to the the simple double quick press of the home button. I disagree. I, I, I think that switching apps on the iPhone X is, is easier. It's more fluid for me, but... Can you do it sight unseen? Yes, easily. Okay. That's, um, that's the requirement is can people do it sight unseen and can you get used to it within a week? Well, the problem when you say sight unseen is you can't unlock the phone sight unseen, but you can multitask sight unseen, yes. You have to be staring at the phone in order to unlock it. That's Face ID. Right. You know, I kind of sometimes uh, wish that uh, when using Face ID that it would be like, yeah, we'll unlock as long as we can see your face, but you don't have to be staring at it. You know, because sometimes you're walking down the street or whatever, and you want it. It's like, yes, I'm holding it for my face. It's okay. I, it would be it would be interesting like if they had you know and they'll never do it just for security purposes but it would be interesting if they had like some sort of a um, customization for layers of security you know Android has done stuff like that for years right like trusted known Wi-Fi networks where it no longer asks you to authenticate to to access the device um, I I find that kind of stuff to be interesting although it's a security nightmare and easily spoofed and, and all that kind of stuff well. It's it's not just that. So there are two things about security, right? There's the the actual security. What is what is going to secure the device? What is going to secure the user's information? But aside from that, there's what is going to comfort the user and reassure the user that they are secure. And and you know, even if they could be confident that they were securing the phone and securing the device's information and unlock it without you looking directly at it, 
there's a lot of apprehension around face ID from people that haven't experienced it and don't know what what all of our informed listeners out there know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you talk about people in the supermarket line while you're using – well, you're using Apple Pay to pay, right? And the person says, oh, you've got the touch ID on that one. I don't want the one that unlocks with my face because I'm kind of scared that it's going to, you know, it's, it's not going to be secure enough or it's right. not going to work or it's got my face or I don't know, yeah. whatever the reason is. And, you know, you, you have to do things to reassure the user that Apple's done it correctly. You have to do things to reassure the user that it is secure, that they are paying attention, that it can't just be spoofed by anyone. And so I, I completely understand that that added step, that added bit that makes it that much more well, going back, intentional to use. Going back to the 6.1-inch phone, though, it's just interesting. I'm trying to wrap my head around what it is because the closer it looks to an iPhone 10, the less differentiation there is in the product lineup. So if you're ditching the home button, you're adding Face ID. Um, my expectation on this phone is that it will not have the same level of edge-to-edge display as the iPhone 10, but it will have greatly reduced bezels around the side. So imagine um, an iPhone 8 design and the bezel that you have on the left and right side of the handset is now equivalent on the top and bottom of the handset. Um, and then someone in the comments uh, said, well, then why would you need to have a notch for Face ID if um, you had bezels uh, still around the outside of it. It wasn't an edge-to-edge display. Well, the answer to that is the notch and the camera array are still larger than those bezels would be. Well, and we've got an iOS that is is well aware of the notch at this point, and it may as well be a consistent experience across all of the devices. Oh, and you wouldn't want to make a perceived better experience on the cheaper phone, too. Yeah. But this is the thing is that the product matrix, you know, years and years and years ago, back in the Stone Age, when when you and I were small lads rolling around in diapers, the product matrix consisted of four things, right? It consisted of two pro models, a pro laptop and a pro desktop, Mm -hmm. and a consumer laptop and a consumer desktop. And the phone matrix was originally the phone, and then it became the phone across the different storage levels, right? And then it became the the bigger phone and the smaller phone. And then it became the bigger phone, the smaller phone, and the free phone, mm-hmm. the SE. Mm-hmm. And so now the product matrix is entirely confused. It's completely muddled. And I, I think that that the attitude to take to that is that it's a sort of Zen attitude, that that they don't want to make one phone that everyone has to accept as the phone for everybody anymore. That at this point, they're able to make a series of phones, a range of phones for different people, different price points, and who value different things. If you value the idea of having a new phone, but you value it having being an affordable phone, then this LCD model is going to be the one for you. Yeah. If you like having the phones that are the OLED models, that are the better phones, better equipped, better, you know, fancier displays, better edge to edge, then you're going to go for the 5.8 or the 6.5. I think that there's always a transition period too. And you see how Apple manages that transition period with these products. They've done it, you know, in in years past. And I think that we're lightning port. We're in the midst of another transition right now. Well, there are some that they want to do quickly. And there are some transitions that they do a little more slowly for mostly for pricing purposes. So um, we saw one with the MacBook pro. Um, They introduced the retina MacBook pro, but it was expensive and they wanted to still be able to sell Macs to people who wanted a pro Mac that could not sacrifice the, you know, CD, DVD, ROM, super drive or any of that stuff. So they kept the non retina 13 inch model around for years after the retina model was launched. 
Um, even today, the 12 inch MacBook, same situation, overpriced, a little too expensive for a lot of people. Apple's solution, keep the, the MacBook Air around. In fact, they gave it a spec bump last year and gave it a slightly faster processor. So I think that what you're going to see for the next few years is an iPhone lineup in a state of transition. Um, Apple can't go all LED on all of their phones because it's too expensive, but they have to be able to hit lower price points because they can't sell just phones a thousand dollars and up. And they don't want to keep making new models necessarily with home button, headphone jack and whatever. So what they're going to try to do is keep, you know, their toes in in the water uh, in both sides of it, where you're going to have these newer phones with face ID and varying levels of specs. Um, and then you're still going to have older phones with touch ID and whatever uh, still hanging around. Absolutely. And, and there is a number of transitions going on at the moment. There's the USB-C transition that's taking place in the, the laptop and desktop side sure, of things. Yeah. And it, it takes time. You can't just switch that stuff overnight. You, you, there are going to be challenges when it comes to the user experience. There are going to be habits that people have. Uh, there's going to be a market for it. There's going to be a need for it. Um, you know, it, what What will be interesting to see is whether Apple is forced to revisit devices or just let them lay stagnant. Uh, last year's MacBook Air update is a great example of where Apple basically looks at the numbers and they say, well, we're selling a lot of these computers sub $1,000, and that's a price point we just don't want to abandon, but we can't sell a 12-inch MacBook with Retina Display under $1,000, so what do we do? Well, we can't get rid of this MacBook Air. Let's give it a slightly faster processor. We'll keep it on the market. You know, to to have a nod to throw that at um, that device tells you that it's still a big part of Apple's sales, even though they want to push consumers in other directions. But for whatever reasons, whether it's price, capability, ports, what have you, um, they have to stay in that market. And so it will be telling in the years to come if, um, you know, I, I predicted on this podcast uh, that maybe Apple would choose to keep the iPhone 6S chassis around um, in a year or two and just quietly kind of update the specs in it you know give it like a newer processor or something like that for the market that likes the home button and the headphone jack and wants a bigger screen uh, that that wouldn't shock me if they did something like that i mean they've done it with other product lineups in the past why not i don't see it being something that they push really hard or try to make the flagship device but i think if there's a market for it they'd be stupid not to continue to sell phones to those people especially if there are millions of them buying phones yeah well, they're going to have no shortage of A8 processors lying around, so <laughs> they certainly could do something. Yeah, given all those HomePods they're going to be making. <laughs> well, the A8's too old. The A9 was in the success. So, yeah. So this that's an interesting question. So why would they put an A8 in the HomePod when they had all the A9 from the success? They could just keep an A9 in there. It's uh, a good question. You know, they they still have the manufacturing process, presumably with you know TSMC or whoever with A8 and. Uh, you know, it's probably certain uh, capabilities of the A9 that they just don't need, uh, you know, the GPU, that sort of stuff. Uh, it's not, you know, they're not pushing out any graphics on, on the HomePod. So that would be my guess is Apple's very good at leveraging economies of scale and taking technology they've already pioneered and moving it to other devices. And you've seen that many times. Uh, and the HomePod is just another example of that, where the custom silicon makes its way to another device and is used in a way that fits that device. I have to stop and talk about battery okay. health. I know it's our favorite issue on this podcast lately. We've been talking about it since uh, mm -hmm. November, mm -hmm. December. And we talk about it all the sure. time. So 
Apple's second beta of iOS 11.3 mm -hmm. adds the battery right. health section. And you wrote a first look about it. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of odd right now. Again, we're in beta, so, you know, you have to be patient. But certain phones are now displaying this feature that Apple has promised. Um, my iPhone 10 has it. Certain phones are not displaying it. People in the comments are saying their iPhone 8 and iPhone 7 do not. But because of public outcry, whatever you want to call it, um, this battery controversy has compelled Apple to be more transparent and to disclose to users when their battery health is not good, um, and also to let them disable this throttling feature. Um, I'm of two minds about it. I think that disclosing the battery health is good for consumers, and I think it's fine. I think that the throttling thing is a little overblown and kind of stupid. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a certain segment of power user that is going to go in and tweak those kind of things. And I guess that's fine. I think that the way that Apple is handling it is, is okay. It's a few menus deep and you got to kind of tap a tiny button to say, Oh, I'd like to disable this. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I don't understand what I'm doing and I want to have my phone randomly crash on me. Um, I think that, um, the way that they're handling it is fine. I, I think that the, the turning off the throttling is kind of silly, but disclosure about the health of your battery is ultimately a good thing. Yeah. And that's what we really needed all along. The, uh, I, I know Mike Worthley is, is vehemently opposed to letting people disable the <laughs> throttling. I understand that logic and I, and I tend to agree with it, but I'm not going to, you know, sit here from Mount Olympus and tell people what they can and can't do with their devices. I mean, I've jailbroken my stuff in the past. I've, uh, you know, tweaked and hacked and customized and all that. So there's something to be said for power users uh, doing what they would like to do. And that's available not only in the 11.3 the beta that's uh, available to developers, but it's also in the yeah. public beta. Along with the new Animoji and AR Kit 1.5 and a few other additions that will be coming this spring. Uh, AirPlay 2. And Apple is uh, demonstrating AR Kit at yeah, Game Developer yeah, Conference. Yeah. So there should be some, some hopeful news coming out of that where people decide we keep that it's worthwhile. We keep holding to, our to breath, hoping for a... Uh, uh, for Apple to really embrace games in a big way. And uh, I, I think an appearance at GDC is a pretty good sign. So hopefully hopefully they're turning a corner here. I certainly hope so. I mean, we, we talk about what are the applications of augmented reality, and games mm -hmm. is certainly one of them. And uh, what whatever has to happen for game developers to actually embrace Apple and for Apple to actually embrace game developers is something that needs to take place because there have been half-hearted attempts at it in years past that haven't quite worked. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, they got so much cash and they're going to be bringing it stateside. I, you know, I, I'm obviously not in charge, but if I was, I would just throw a bunch of money at a developer. If not buying them, then at least paying them to port something over. I mean, you know, th there are developers out there who take their high-end PlayStation 4 games and, and port them to Nintendo Switch. Uh, so... There's no reason that you couldn't get, you know, a PS4, Xbox One game not running on an Apple TV. You know, Apple TV 4K is way more powerful than a Nintendo Switch. So, you know, why why can't we have Destiny 2 on Apple TV? Why can't we have the next Grand Theft Auto, you know, or Red Dead Redemption 2 or whatever? Why not? Throw a bunch of money at it. See what happens. I just want to play Cuphead. Yeah, that would be cool too. Whatever. 
I have simple simple goals in life. You know, Apple um, brought on that game company whose next game, the name is escaping me right now, but they did uh, Flower and Journey and a bunch of other great stuff. And unfortunately, the game was delayed, but it's coming to Apple TV this spring. Uh, and they're a great developer, and that's awesome, but that's a niche, you know, indie-style developer. That they, I think they started at, like, Cambridge it's- or something. Definitely a different sort of game genre than your your you know your MMPRGs and your uh, your your driving games. Or yeah, and, like and that. personally, you know, I love those kind of games, so I'm more excited about that coming to Apple TV than I would be about Destiny Two coming to Apple TV. But if you're looking at it from a business perspective, and you're looking at it from the types of people that spend a lot of money on software and that are very profitable for the companies that play in that space. Um, that would be a good place for Apple to throw some money at. So yeah, them appearing at GDC um, to push AR kit, it's cool, but I hope it's a harbinger of better things to come uh, and, and uh, you know, a sign that they are really going to push in that space. Yeah. HomePod, mm-hmm. your favorite speaker in mine. Get mine tomorrow. Cool. For people who didn't order theirs when Neil ordered mm-hmm. his, you may not get yours tomorrow. <laughs> They never sold out of launch just, day inventory, but as of Wednesday evening, um, new deliveries were set to arrive next week, which, I mean, if you wait until a day before the thing is supposed to arrive, yes, you can't get it shipped overnight. So there you go. So it's not necessarily that it's sold out. I think that it's just shipping and logistics take some time. So if you waited then and you live in the United States, then you may be waiting a little longer. But the first yeah. reviews came out this week, and... Um, they were pretty much what you'd expect. Um, How so? People say, well, people say that the speaker sounds great. The the design is fantastic. And Siri is behind the competition. Um, but the one thing that stood out to me that uh, I was pretty excited to hear and was pretty consistent across the reviews was that um, the invoke command of she who shall not be named uh, works very well to a point that if you're playing music loudly your inclination would be to shout over the music to have the speaker hear you but you can just say hey you know who in in very uh, hush tones and because of the microphone array and and the technology in there it will hear you over the music yeah technically that's called the wake word right well whatever you want to call it and, and I can say that here because I have no devices around me that will actually respond to that. But it, the, they did a good job of being able to recognize the Hey Siri command, the wake word, mm-hmm. while loud music is being played. And that's because they have the microphones and it's because they've done some good machine learning for what that sound looks like. Right. And there's actually, actually an article on the machine learning journal that Apple, Apple publishes that talks about how they do that. And... Uh, I was reading that whole article as I was writing this uh, this thing that I was writing about how uh, Google Home, Amazon Alexa, and Echo stack up with what HomePod looks like it can do and what Siri is capable of. Well, let me give you an interesting one here. HomePod does not recognize multiple users, even though Siri on iPhone, iPad, whatever, when you set it up, 
is designed to recognize your voice so that your phone goes off, but your wife's doesn't or whatever, right? Right, right. But I, I want to answer that. So keep going. And I want to say something about that. Well, so yeah. So the HomePod doesn't do that, which is odd, even though the phone will do it. Here's an interesting one for you. Uh, Apple takes out ads on TV that promote Siri, um, including um, one that they run on NBC's The Good Place. And every week that it runs, it triggers my phone when it comes out of okay. the speaker. So, so stop. I want to talk about both these things separately okay. for just a second. So, and I'm sorry to say stop like that. But, it's okay. But I, I, I got I want to talk about it so bad. So uh, the first part is Siri on HomePod not recognizing multiple users and the idea that the phone does. And... It's, it's a little more nuanced than that. The phone does not recognize multiple users either. What well, the phone does is that it discards users that are not the one person who set it up right. and trained it on your voice. Right. So it's not that they've trained multiple voices and recognized multiple users and distinguished between them, which is something that you can do with Google Home. But when instead what they do on the phone is that they filter out multiple users and they focus on the one primary owner of that phone or that that iPad. Mm -hmm. And on HomePod, they're still focused on the idea of one user, even though it's now in a setting that has multiple people around it speaking to it. And this is something that, that's been brought up in one of the reviews that I read, is the concept that it, it has your personal information coming through it. It can read your messages, it can read your emails, mm -hmm. and you can reply to those things, which is great if you are the sole person in your home and the only person using the speaker. But if you turn that function on, which is, of course, what happens during setup naturally, and you leave the room and a message comes in, other people who are still in that room can hear that message and they can punk you. They can reply to that message as if they were you. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're right that this can be potentially a privacy concern. And it, it's definitely something to consider. Do you want to allow everyone who comes into your room to be able to hear your messages and reply right. to them? And you can turn that off in the settings. So you certainly can. But that's, but that's one of the things that if you whipped through setup, right. because you were anxious to get it going, you might right. miss, it would be on by default. And they, they should get to a place, but they're not there yet. They should get to a place where they train on multiple users and recognize your voice before they read messages aloud to someone that's not right. you. Agreed. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's got to happen, right? Yeah. We want it to happen. No, it's going to happen. Yeah. And when we said that they're behind, I, I take a little bit of issue with this. This is something that I was writing about in this piece that, that you have yet to see. Um you know, they, they have Siri working in a large number of countries. I forget. I, I, have, I wrote in the article how, much, how many countries they have it working in and how many languages it's actually localized in, where Google Home works in four countries and mm -hmm. where Amazon Alexa is available in 89 countries for sale, but the languages that it actually works in is much smaller. You, if you're in one of those 89 countries, the chances are you're either speaking English to it or German. Well, wait a minute, though. And where is HomePod launching? Well, HomePod is launching in... Three countries. Three countries. Mm -hmm. And one of but, them is... But Siri and Apple Music are available across many, many more countries. So Siri is far more ready for these other countries than the other two. Apple still has not announced uh, a launch schedule for HomePod in Canada. <laughs> I, I get that, but Apple I, but Music understand. is available in all these places, and Siri is available in all of these places. So when they do launch Apple, when they do launch HomePod in those countries, 
HomePod will have the advantage because it will be the one that speaks the language natively sure. as opposed to the yeah, others where you'll be speaking English to them. You know, if you buy an Amazon Echo device in India, and they did launch Amazon Echo in, you know, they, they launched Echo Dot and Echo version 2 in India. In India, you're going to speak English to it. Well, if, if you're in Denmark, you're not speaking Danish to Amazon Alexa, you're speaking English to it. Can I get it if, to stop listening to my TV? Can we do that? Well, that's the other thing you just mentioned. So Amazon ran a Echo ad in, uh, well, an Alexa ad, really, during the Super Bowl. And they did something very sneaky that allowed them to name Alexa in that commercial several times without it triggering any of the Echoes. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing is that they pulled out some frequency bands every time the wake word was said, every time Alexa was said. And because they did that, because they they changed the equalization on that one word, the speaker didn't trigger. And so it's entirely possible for for Apple to do the same kind of stunt, where if you change the frequencies, you won't hear the difference as a human, but the speaker will and can decide to prompt or not prompt based on that. Well, they should do that. <laughs> they totally should. But yeah, that's that's something that Amazon is well aware of and the others could do as well. It's it's nothing fantastically new. It's something that, that they were able to implement for the Super Bowl and didn't have to update the firmware on any of the devices to handle. It just worked. But that's that's my position is that, yes, they have a launch schedule for HomePod. Yes, they haven't announced what it is for, for a range of countries, but they're in a better position than any of the others. They're not, as much as we say that, that Apple is behind the curve mm-hmm. here, that because they've gone and put in the work into localizing Siri and having Apple Music available in all of these countries, that the second they do turn on sales, they will be the one that makes obvious sense because the interface will be in the native language where the others are not. That's true. Good point. Thank you. I got there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I am looking forward to seeing what you have to say about HomePod. I, I'm of a couple of minds about it. One of them is that you know these other products, the the Echo and the Google Homes, they are smart in capital letters and speaker in small letters, right? The, the, the emphasis is on the speaker being a smart speaker as opposed to being a smart speaker, right. right? Where HomePod is very much a smart in small letters speaker in capital letters. That's what I'm interested in testing out here too, because, you know, um, I'm getting my HomePod tomorrow and then uh, Max, our video guy, is getting his uh, tomorrow as well. And we're going to be looking at two different perspectives because he – has a lot of experience with smart speakers and and uh, Amazon Echo and and all that stuff, and I uh, have really no experience with them. I have never really felt compelled to get one. Didn't really feel like I was missing out. Um, I had you know an Apple Watch and a phone, and and they kind of satisfied all my needs when it came to looking stuff up and setting reminders and timers and HomeKit and all that stuff. Well, you're all in on HomeKit as well. Right, which helps. Uh, so it, uh, he's going to be Max is going to be helping me out with this review because obviously you have to address both of those markets. And I, I have a lot of, um, uh, I have a lot of nice speakers um, in my home. I have a five point one system setup that I listen to music on with a record player and stuff like that. So I'll be bringing a very different take to the use of the device than Max will, uh, because I don't really care that much. As I've said on this podcast before. The limitations of Siri don't really bother me. I'm not like one of these people who yeah. needs to set multiple timers. You know, <laughs> that's well, like I one am, of the complaints. I, oh, I, I know, I know, and that's. <laughs> I'm not saying that like. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying my use case is very different from other people. Uh, there are some people who really want their speaker to read them the news or traffic or whatever. I don't care about that. I I don't. I would like to see 
uh, more integration between platforms. I would like to say, you know, send directions on Google Maps to my phone to, you know, complex multi-step things that would save me some time. I'm running out yeah, the door. Yeah, you need compound sentences. Yeah, I'm running out the door. I want to do something. Or um, I want to turn off the lights in two rooms and not say each room, you know, is separate commands. I want to... Uh, load up content on my TV. But not only that, I want it to turn on the TV, turn off the lights, all that. You know, I see voice-driven personal assistants becoming more valuable when they can do complex multi-step things. The reason that I use uh, Siri all the time for reminders is because the amount of time it says it takes to say, set a reminder tomorrow at nine o'clock to do this versus opening my phone, opening the reminders app, type in the text, choosing a time, like, you know, it's so much yeah. faster to use your voice for complex multi-step things. And eventually where it needs to get is where all these devices talk to each other. I need to be able to talk to my HomePod to have it do stuff with my phone and my Apple TV. I need to be able to talk to my Mac to have it control items in my phone. I, I need to be able to have it to say, I want this on this device and just have it happen. Because if I'm running out the door and I need directions somewhere and I got to figure out how long it's going to take me to get there on the train or whatever, and I don't want to pull out my phone and walk and whatever, I should be able to do that. If I want to be able yeah. to get a, a lift to come pick me up, I should be able to do that with my HomePod. And, and I think that eventually we will be able to do that. We're just so not there right all, now. You can do all of these things a little bit more discreetly than that, right? You know, you can take a Google Home and control a Chromecast and you can control Chromecast whole home audio with that. You can control Netflix, you can control you know, Crackle, CW, some other video apps and have them do things on the TV from for you from the speaker. Right. Um, with Alexa, you can control a Fire TV and you can control the um, – you know, using a harmony, you can control the inputs of the TV and you can also have it do the lighting for you. And you can set all those up as this is my scene for watching movies. And you can tell Alexa that you want to watch movies and then kick off a thing on Netflix. And you can do some of these things. I, I was controlling a Fire TV from Alexa and having it kick off shows and load shows and do all of these things. And I've been doing that with Google Home here as well. And uh, I, I, of course, can't do that from Siri at this time because Siri on the phone won't control the Apple TV yet. Yeah. And and it's odd that it doesn't because it's all in the cloud anyhow. So, Well, and we've talked about, you know, the, the concept that Siri on one device is not the same as Siri on the other device. Right. And that's still true for HomePod. Yeah. That there are, there are things that are glaring about HomePod, for instance, calendars. Mm -hmm. you, you can do notes, you can do reminders and things, but... You can't manage calendars on a HomePod, is my understanding. Right. And I don't care about that. I mean, I don't even care about messages on the HomePod. If I really want to respond to a text message, I'm going to pull out my phone so I can read it. I don't want to hear, you know, some... Vo the boring listening through the voice through reading the yeah i want to i want to read it, than it be read and, and then maybe i'll dictate a response but i need to i want to read it with my own eyes so and everybody's use case is going to be different right i mean there are some yeah. users who uh would appreciate from an accessibility standpoint the um ability of of uh home to read text to them so i, I think that it, it kind of you know needs at some point to become a jack of all trades because the use case for personal assistance, voice driven personal assistance is so varied and so different based on uh, how you work, how you live, what you do um, that in many cases, it's going to be very different. You know, like the, the Siri functionality of, um, of AirPods, not very useful to me. Um, you know, I'm not going to be 
barking orders at my headphones while I'm on the train, right? Like that's not going to happen. But for some people, they, they might find that to be the most convenient thing. Uh, it needs to be different things for different people. Uh, and the use cases are going to vary wildly. But the fact that it doesn't do multiple timers at launch is inexcusable, obviously, um, even though I would never use that. But Well, I, I did it. The other day on Google Home. Yeah, and, and I have my Google too. Home Mini sitting right next to my Alexa V2 and uh, to my Echo V2. And I, I just bark at one and then bark at the other. <laughs> and, you know, I was I was setting up timers and I just randomly picked that I was going to do it with Google. And I set a timer for five minutes. And then my wife said, wait, set another timer for 35 minutes. So I set another timer for 35 minutes and then I canceled the one for five minutes. And I was able to do it all by voice right. and it was all pretty easy. There are problems, but we need to get to a point where the syntax is less important, yeah. that you can say things out of right. order and it will still right. be recognized and that you can use synonyms and it will still be recognized. Yeah, they need to be truly intelligent. You know, watch versus play for heaven's yeah. sakes, right? You need to be able to treat these things right. the they same way. They need to way. be actually intelligent and not just, you know. Well, if if we're having to rely on people knowing the magic syntax. It's not going to work. Then we haven't progressed far enough from the command line. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, going over these reviews, um, I think that it's like I was saying, it's about what you'd expect. People are very happy with the sound quality. If you are locked into the Apple ecosystem and you don't mind the limitations of Siri as they are on your phone, um, you'll probably, and you want a nice speaker, you'll probably be very happy with the $350 purchase. But uh, if you're not locked into the Apple ecosystem, you're not heavily invested, you're not on Apple Music or iTunes Match or whatever. Um, and you don't really care that much about sound quality, then you're better off with a cheaper, different option. Well, if you bought an iPhone and you signed up for an Apple Music trial and you decided afterwards to keep it going, so now you're on Apple Music, then it makes complete sense. It really does. One of the things that I was thinking about, and it's it's sort of been kicking me a little bit, I have an iPod Hi-Fi, you know, one of the white rectangular things. It's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Feels like it was a, a Dieter Rams Braun design mm-hmm. because basically it was. Um, I kid, but, you know, we all know the joke about Johnny Ive borrowing heavily from Dieter Rams right. and, or paying homage to Dieter Rams. And um, so I, I like it very much. It's it's completely reasonable, especially it's, it's very nice for what it is. Um, there, there's a good question as to why Apple failed with the iPod Hi-Fi versus why they're going to succeed here and why they're attempting to succeed here. And we spend a lot of time talking about these smart speakers about it, but I think that we're missing the point a little bit. Can I, can I just go off on this tangent for one second? Go ahead. Bear, bear with me. All right. So we know that Apple retail has some of the most valuable real estate in, in retail in the world, right? That, that Apple sells very well out of their retail stores and that they've devoted to their retail stores since the beginning, practically um, a section for audio and that they've had Bose, they've had Bowers and Wilkins, they've had Bang and Olufsen, they've had the DVLA, they carried Libertone for a while. Mm-hmm. They, they've had good products in that audio section and you used to be able to, in some stores you still can, go in and turn it up and just listen to them yep. and, and try them next to each other. Yeah. And my, my perspective here, my thought here is that Apple looked at this space, they've continually had this space, they've continually stocked this space, they buy in this space, and yet they haven't had an Apple product in this space for a long time, that here's their opportunity to go ahead and put their own speaker in Mm -hmm. and put it up against the Bowers and Wilkins, put it up against the DVLA and take that money for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's got Siri in it is, is unimportant 
because the Bowers and Wilkins doesn't have Siri in it. The Libertone doesn't have Siri in it. In fact, the Libertone, if we can be completely open about it, the Libertone has Amazon Alexa in it now after a firmware update. Right. So the Zip and the Zip Mini, they have a button on top and that button now prompts Alexa. Uh, there are lots of good reasons, you know, why, why you can say Apple is not only not last in this thing, that Apple is first in this thing because none of the other speakers that they carry in the Apple retail store have any smarts to them. And so now you've got an AirPlay 2 speaker that's got Siri in it and that, that Bowers and Wilkins Zeppelin Air doesn't. I, I I totally agree with what you're saying, but I have a slightly different take on it. You, you asked the question of why the iPod Hi-Fi didn't catch on, but the HomePod might. And I think that the difference is technology has changed so much in the last 10 years in the way that we use it, but also in the way that it's designed. You know, one of the things that made the uh, first iPhone so successful um, that we don't appreciate now just because we kind of take it for granted is that a screen that is a, a device that is entirely screen is essentially a blank canvas. It can become whatever it needs to be in apps. Um, the interface can completely be redesigned and rechanged in a way that you couldn't do with technology previously. Yeah. Dieter Rams actually said that exact same sentiment in, um, in the movie, and I'm forgetting the name of the movie now, but uh, there was a movie filmed in 2008, 2009 that interviewed Rams about the iPhone mm -hmm. and and he said exactly that. Objectified maybe. That's the one. You're in good company. Wow. So um you think about legacy computing devices. You think about your even modern ones, your MacBook Pro, right? Um you have a keyboard and you have a, a trackpad. And you can plug things in and you can do certain types of things and they can change the way the interface is on the screen, but your primary way of interacting with it, which is the keyboard and the trackpad, are not going to change because they're built into the hardware. They're you're stuck with it. That's it. When you have a blank canvas, when you have a screen that you can do whatever you want with, uh, Apple could just blow it all up and go, well, let's change it. And so you haven't seen that so much on the iPhone. Certainly with apps you have. A apps can be dynamic and take up the entire screen and do whatever. But the, the overall interface of the iPhone hasn't really changed that much. It's more interesting when you look at the Apple Watch because the Apple Watch was um, – a device that came out with a certain purpose, a certain design philosophy behind it, an idea. And uh, a lot of it didn't work. You know, the side button to send uh, digital touch messages didn't work. Uh, the app home screen with a grid of icons uh, is kind of being phased out. Um, they brought in this dock. They've added, you know, side swipe gestures and all that. The, when you use an Apple Watch now, it's very different from what it was when it launched three years ago. And that, again, is because you have a device that is primarily just a screen and you can do whatever you want with it. And so when you think about HomePod in that same context, obviously not the screen is, is not the centerpiece of it, but voice is. And again, that's kind of, it's not a physical way of interacting with it. It's limiting. It's a, it's a freeing way. And so much like the Apple Watch before it and the iPhone and, and the iPad to, to an extent, uh, I see a lot of potential for the HomePod because I see a lot of runway in front of it. They, they've shipped it with the I, or the A8 processor. They've shipped it with the ability for Siri to grow and evolve and change in ways that Apple uh, may not even see right now until they get it in people's homes and find out the way that they use it. And so I see a lot of potential for that device because when you compare it to the iPod Hi-Fi, that was a very different device that had an input for a specific piece of hardware. It could certainly have other things be plugged in, but it was all about the physical interface with it. And there was no intelligence to it, no expandability to it. Um, it was just a speaker. And while 
HomePod is being positioned as a speaker. We all know it's not just a speaker, and we all know the potential for it is so much greater. And by design, they're shipping it with an A8 processor so they can ship software updates and really ramp it up over the coming years. And that's why I expect that this hardware probably won't be updated for two, three, maybe even more years, just because they're shipping it on purpose with very powerful hardware to give it the capability to expand and grow in the years that come. So again, I see a lot of runway for the HomePod, and I see it being able to change and adapt and shift uh, in ways like the Apple Watch before it that will allow it to turn into the device that people want. I am hopeful for software updates because one of the announcements that we had was the EDIQ telling people that um, HomePod will not be able to have manual EQ options, that users will not be able to adjust the EQ settings on the device. Uh, it's going to automatically set levels and, and EQ itself for each individual song. It's going to do that based on the microphones, based on beam forming to gauge the acoustics of the room and correct for problems within seconds. But it's it's not going to allow people who like more bass or like more treble or like a neutral setting to choose anything about that. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I see specifically the people who claim to be audiophiles, the people who are focused on that kind of thing. Uh, being a little hesitant now because they like right. the idea very much of, of a speaker that can set itself up for the room properly, but not being able to set a neutral setting um, as opposed to a base head setting could be problematic. And that's an area where software updates are inevitably going to address this. You saw the same problem with the Apple TV 4K when it shipped. Apple didn't offer um, users the ability to have it display content natively. It just put it all in one resolution. And the reason behind that was for a better user experience, because if you've ever used a TV that had to switch from uh, one resolution to another or one frame rate to another, you know, you load up some 24 frame per second content and then the TV needs to go black and then switch. And that doesn't look very good from a user perspective. And so Apple figures most users aren't going to want that. But for those that do, now they've issued a software update. You can go into your Apple TV 4K and you can enable it to display content in its native format. And, uh, you know, the, I think everybody wins in that situation. The the tech heads that really want to be able to customize it and really want to be able to run it the way that they want can have those power user features and everybody else just gets a better experience as a result. And I think that you're going to see the same thing with HomePod. I would imagine that EQ controls are going to be coming in a future software update and they're going to be buried in the settings so that the people that really want to go and tweak those kind of things can do it. But for the vast majority of users who buy this thing, it's going to be as simple as plop it down, have it sound the way that it should sound and be done with it. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. I, I wish that I had the uh, disposable income from <laughs> the, the Apple Insider Cabal fund to, to get one for myself here. I am I'm a little envious. Yeah, I'm excited to test it out. I think it looks like a great product. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, we, let's keep going here. I've got uh, another interview about uh, DSP stuff that I'm going to tack on in this one. So we can we can go as long or short as we want. Uh, do you care about the iOS 9 iBoot story? I mean, it's interesting that the code leaked, but other than that, I think it was kind of overblown by the media. I think that... Um I think that uh, a lot of stories portrayed it as though, you know, a crucial portion of iOS leaked and then it buried the lead and said, well, it was actually iOS 9. So, yeah, two versions ago. Yeah. So who knows what's changed in the interim? It may be a big deal. It may not. We'll see. But there's no need to get like worked up over it. I, I think the more interesting part of that is that we have this perception of Apple as being very secretive 
and being very well guarded at protecting secrets. And, you know, the historical reasons for that are, are partly that was the way that, that jobs led people, but it was also because you know, people want to, to maintain the, um, not, not just their jobs, but, you know, the, the spirit of loyalty to the rest of their coworkers and to trying to do something good. And when things leak out, it, it's damaging. Yeah. You know, the, the same as product launches that leak early, you know, you've ruined the surprise, you've made it, it, you, you take that moment of glee away from people as they see everyone else begin to see what you've been working on for the past two years, four years. Right. And so there's a sense of betrayal there. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen with Apple very much in years past. There were occasional leaks from time to time, but they were very small. This seems more substantially interesting. I saw something funny the other day to that point. Uh, Sony just remade a classic game, Shadow of the Colossus, in 4K for PlayStation 4. And they have like some new collectibles because the game has been redone. And uh, people are going through and finding them. They're trying to collect them all. And there's something in the credits, apparently, that teases that you'll find something when you pick up all these collectibles. And so the website Kotaku issued a, a question to Sony to ask about this thing that people have found. And Sony had this like incredulous response through their... Uh, through their PR team, which was just basically, it, 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 I'm summarizing here, but basically it was, you guys take the fun out of everything, just stop it. <laughs> like, you know, there are people that are playing the game and exploring and enjoying it. We want them to be able to enjoy this. Stop ruining things. Just stop. Nice. <laughs> now, you've been charging wirelessly with your phone, and you've been charging wirelessly with your uh, your watch, mm-hmm. and soon you'll be able to charge wirelessly with your AirPods. Supposedly. Potentially. Apple just says coming 2018, so we don't really know yet. But there was a rumor this week that I would not place a lot of stock in um, that uh, claims that Best Buy thinks it's coming in late March. Uh, The reason I would not place a lot of stock in it is, um, I won't name names, but the publication that put it out uh, is not, does not have a track record of any real meaning. Um, They also have a tendency to write stories about things um, and not credit where they got the information from uh, and not link because uh, I don't know why they do that. So it's an interesting uh, rumor that they claim they got from Best Buy. Um, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it, but uh, people are excited about getting air power. I'm too. Uh, There was a rumor last fall and I I dove into the comments on this one um, because there was a rumor last fall that Apple is going to charge $199 for the air power. And um, I just don't buy it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I think that Apple would be uh, basically insane to charge more for air power than they do for AirPods. So you can get AirPods for one sixty nine, and they're going to charge two hundred dollars for a mat that'll charge your AirPods. Like that would be nuts. So I think you know you can get a really a, a nice charging mat, like you know a brand name one, Samsung, whatever, uh, company, Mophie's, you know companies that make them for fifty, sixty dollars. I would suspect you can get a perfectly functional off-brand one for ten like bucks, fifteen. Yeah, you 20. get it for like ten bucks. Yeah. Uh, I would suspect that AirPower would be priced around like ninety-nine dollars. Um, that seems right for me because it does stuff that the other chargers won't do. It's m- way more expensive than the other chargers. You know, especially a sixty-dollar Mophie, you're going to go for forty bucks more, um, and it's still reasonably priced enough that you could justify it because it charges your phone your AirPods and your watch at the same time. You got to get the new case for your AirPods and all that. But I have a very hard time uh, barring some sort of like major technical thing that, that, you know, was an R and D or manufacturing or something like that for Apple to come to market at $200 for that thing would be crazy. So I just don't buy that rumor. Yeah. That seems pretty high. 
yeah. That was something that came out last fall and has been circulating since just because Apple hasn't given pricing on it. But I suspect 100 bucks will be where it's at. I can see that. I'd, I'd prefer it at 79. Hey, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer it at 25 bucks, right? off the shelves. Well, I mean, you think about what MagSafe used to cost on a MacBook Pro and still does if you get a new cable um, versus how much cheaper things are now with USB-C. So, you know, this idea that Apple makes everything so much more expensive is not always true. Um and in addition to that, because of USB-C, if your cable gets frayed, you don't have to rebuy the whole thing. You can just buy the cable and keep the power plug. So um, in many ways, power adapters are much cheaper now than they used to be. I'm afraid so. Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories is a show that Apple was going to revive as a part of their content play. They still are, yeah. And uh, they had Brian Fuller as the showrunner. Mm-hmm. And it's... it's uh, Sort of unsurprising in a way, but Brian Fuller has now decided that he's going to not be the showrunner. He's going to leave that project. Uh, he had basically said that he wanted the the series to run a little closer to Black Mirror, which is the the show that right. Netflix is carrying right now. And that that my reaction when I heard that was good that he's not doing it because Amazing Stories was always a hopeful, optimistic yeah. show. And Black Mirror is not. Yeah. The the idea of, of making amazing stories into something closer Sounds to Black like terrible, Mirror. Yeah. Uh, we already no. have Black Mirror. We don't need another no, one. No, thank you. <laughs> well, we, we not only already have Black Mirror, we also have Electric Dreams, which is the uh, Amazon-produced yeah. original around Philip K. Dick's stories, which are also not necessarily optimistic and hopeful. So we have two shows like that. Do we really want Brian Fuller to run a third? Well, it's no surprise that Brian Fuller left this show because he has a history of leaving shows. So um, uh, that's kind of his thing. Um, he was involved with the Star Trek Discovery show that's on CBS All Access, left that. Um, and he left uh, uh, American Gods after that premiered on uh, Stars and Amazon. Yeah. You, you would do, you would have a much easier time naming projects that Brian Fuller stayed on for a second <laughs> season. Instead of naming all of the ones that he left, because yeah, people love the Hannibal show. Uh, he was with that for a he little was, while. He was he was on yeah, Hannibal yeah. for a while, and he was on Pushing Daisies for two seasons. What was interesting to me about this wasn't that Brian Fuller left; it was that the second in command, the uh, showrunner that Hart Hansen was just to take over, uh, also stepped down the same day. So it's weird because Brian Fuller leaving just kind of seems like oh okay. But then when the second guy steps down the same day, it seems like there's probably some creative friction between uh, the suits at Apple and, and maybe uh, uh, Spielberg's company um, and and uh, the folks working on the okay, show. Okay, first of all, there's something very, very, very grating about the suits at well, Apple. Well, I mean, they are. Phrase. They're, the, they're the biggest company on the planet. You don't think they wear suits that, and, but... and have stupid ideas like <laughs> every other corporation? Oh, they absolutely have stupid ideas. I mean, we don't get EQ on a HomePod. <laughs> but you, and you can't have a second timer either. But we, I, you know, those guys don't wear suits. Those guys are not stuffy. They're just making dumb decisions. I, I think that um, Apple thus far um, in their content deals uh, and the stuff that they've produced uh, is very focused on light fare. Uh, it's carpool karaoke. It's Planet of the Apps. It's, uh, you know, mostly pretty lighthearted stuff. They had like a documentary or two in there, but everything's very friendly, accessible, middle America, uh, you know, I feel like like Apple would love to have a show like This Is Us 
on their network because it's just like, oh, this is light and, and this is uh, something that is not offensive to people. And it it's, it can be, you know, emotional and it can be a tearjerker or whatever. But at the end of the day, you feel, you feel nice about it. You feel happy. It's a feel good kind of thing. I feel like that's what Apple's going for. And th- it's hard to tell, uh, you know, stories if that's just your genre, if you're just the the happy go lucky production studio. <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, showrunners are not going to want to be involved in it with a with something like that. I think a lot of this is growing pains as they expand it. We'll see what happens. But I mean the other shows they have, right? The the it's uh Lisa Kudrow or, or not Lisa Kudrow, uh, Jennifer Aniston the morning show yeah. with a uh, Reese Witherspoon. Um and you know that's like a it's supposed to be like a light like a, a dramedy type thing. Um so yeah, it seems like a lot of the shows that they're picking up are kind of like light fair yeah i'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing but um you can see where a showrunner that would want to do something a little more uh, introspective a little more serious uh, dealing with serious issues okay. might be chased away by I'm apple okay with that. well we'll see what happens i i just am glad from the, the very very selfish perspective i want an amazing stories that reflects the hopefulness of the first one. Oh, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm no no disagreement on that point. I just don't want another Planet of the Apps or Carpool Karaoke. Yeah, I, I mean, here we are. Uh, gosh, when did the original one run? Mid eighties, right? Eighties, yeah, eighties, mid eighties. So, so here we are. Uh, what thirty years later, more or less, and a little less than thirty years later, and I can still remember and still tell you major plot points of amazing stories episodes that I saw back then as a kid. They they stuck with me. I want that show to come back. I want that show. What Apple should do then is is buy the rights to Creep Show and then have Brian Fuller come back and do his Black Mirror ripoff under the Creep Show banner. And that would be your anthology series. That'd be fine. I I, I but I you know the Steven Spielberg Or or, or Tales from the Crypt. I guess well, HBO still I mean, the, the, the thing Crypt. about amazing stories was that it was the it was Almost like, in some ways, a, a Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. but the the again the optimistic, hopeful Twilight Zone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know the the uplifting ending. Yeah. And that was great. No, I, I'm with you. I, you I know, love the, the show. I think it's great. I, I'm I'm going to go back and rewatch the original. <laughs> so there. That's it. More in the home news. Nest was absorbed into the rest of Google to better battle HomeKit. And to listen on while you're home. Well, now, I mean, that's that's something that I wrote about also in this article that you have have yet to get a chance to to edit for me is the um, what what privacy means when it, you introduce these things into your home, right? You know, Google when you set up a Google Home, it warns you. <laughs> you should tell your guests if you have guests in your house that there's a possibility that they'll be recorded. It, it tells you, and you know they tell you that they aren't listening until you say the wake word, and they tell you that what's being heard can be used to improve their service. Mm -hmm. And in some cases will be shared with third-party developers and third-party services, because obviously that's how some of those requests get fulfilled. Um, So there is an awareness that yes, things you're saying are being heard. Uh, The question is where are those things being processed and what's the retention look like for that stuff? And, you know, I mentioned this briefly in in the piece that I wrote. There was a a case called the uh, Hot Tub Murder. It's referred to as the Hot Tub Murder, where a guy in Mm -hmm. Arkansas uh, was was, – is is the defendant in a case where his best friend and – who was a former police officer was murdered in in a hot tub. And there was an Amazon Alexa around. And so the question is, what did Alexa hear? And 
uh, Amazon was doing very good at stonewalling that request as an overbroad request. And then the defendant just voluntarily said, you know what, go ahead and hand over all the data. And so they did. And, and apparently there was nothing much in there to be useful for the case, uh, either for or against him. But right. they, they all say, you know, we don't listen until anything after the wake word. And, and Amazon shows you what they heard in the app. You can scroll through and delete things and review what they understood. And, uh, you know, they right. do that so that you can help improve what they heard. You can say, this isn't at all what I said, and, and give that feedback directly within the app. Uh, Google does not give you that option. With Apple, they are processing as much as they can locally before handing off to servers. So there's there and and there's you know they're also using differential privacy, which is the idea of of adding noise and uh, trying to to randomize mm-hmm. the things a little bit. Um, Google also does differential privacy, but Google is doing differential privacy not on Google Home and its voice recording stuff, but they are doing it on Chrome. So it's it's one of these things that's unevenly applied, and there are questions from different researchers about how well both Google and Apple are doing at differential privacy. You know, do, are they adding enough noise? Are is it still possible to draw these correlations, kind of thing? And uh, so it's very much a question there. Uh, we we presume that Apple's doing it better, but Google published their source for what they're doing for Google Chrome for differential privacy. So it's it's kind of a, a very much birthing pains. Gizmodo had an stuff. interesting article this week where the author there, Kashmir Hill, had uh, her entire home outfitted with smart home stuff and then had a guy that she worked with uh, equip a Raspberry Pi to be an intermediary between her home and the inter- Yeah. Oh, and so the, basically he couldn't view anything that was encrypted, but he could get certain – there were certain unencrypted stuff that he could see outright. Um, most of it was encrypted, but um, – what was interesting was just knowing when they were home and what they did. Like one of the things that he knew was every time that she brushed her teeth. And, uh, you know, it was just interesting from the perspective of, you know, this is what companies are going to know about you going into the future and be able to uh, use to create products or sell you things, advertise to you, whatever. So that's it. Well, it's, it's metadata. It's the data around yeah. the data that you're, you're sending that they couldn't see in the, the network traces and the network. Strange packets. new world we're in. And, well, you know, you go back to the uh, the Snowden revelations. You go back to uh, General Michael Hayden. One of the statements that will always stick with me was was uh, DNI Hayden saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, we kill people over metadata. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. government, right? Mm-hmm. The the military makes decisions based on metadata, and and you are amassing a large amount of mm-hmm. metadata that says when you're home, when your lights are on, when you turn your heating mm-hmm. on, geolocation, any number of things, right? You know, and if you add to that your shopping profile when you're, you know, when your fridge is empty and when you add things to your shopping list, especially if you're using an Amazon Alexa shopping list kind of thing, driven it by voice, you know, you, you amass a large amount of information around what you're doing, even if it's not explicitly the details of what you're doing. Now, Nest has always had a sort of different approach, right? Nest was originally not a voice powered device. Nest did have geolocation in it and, and still does, but Nest was, instead of you setting up routines and you creating automation routines. Nest was trying to intelligently create automations for you. You know, they wanted to intelligently learn your schedule of when you were home and when you weren't home so that they could save heating and cooling bills for you. And they did reasonably well, although a number of users did eventually turn those features off because uh, they weren't perfectly accurate all the time. And so they'd rather just not deal with them. Um, 
but Nest would do sensible things like if you had Nest and Hue and a uh, and and the Nest Protect the uh, smoke detector and carbon monoxide detector all connected within your home, that if the smoke detector detected fire, it would cut off the fan and the heat so as to not fan the flames, and then flash the lights on the Hue light bulbs so that anyone who didn't yeah, hear the alarm. Cool. You know, if you were, uh, if you have less than optimal hearing, for example, you would be able to see that there's an alarm and be able to leave the, the premises. Yeah, you, you could configure that through HomeKit too. You could configure that, but Nest intelligently said, we have all these things in place in this building on this Wi-Fi. That's just something yeah. we're going to do automatically. And so they intelligently came up with a number of things like that. Right. You know, the uh, not not just the you're coming home and because geolocation says you're coming home, we're going to turn on the heating or cooling for you, but because you've approached the door and unlocked your door lock, we now know definitely that you're at home and we're going to do that. Right. And because we know that you're at home and do that, we're going to also turn on the front porch lights. And they would just do these things. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the problems you run into is in, in a home where you have more than one person. Well, great. Have you just turned out the lights and turned off the cooling for the people that are still at home? So that's yeah. always been sort of a push-pull. But yeah. uh, Nest was originally a separate company. It was purchased by Google and they were doing all these things. Well, now... Google's goal is to try and integrate Nest with Google Home so that you have both these two separate things within the same, you know, overall company umbrella, not competing with each other. They need to cooperate. They need to to complement each other better. It's creepy. Well, I'm not sure that it's creepy. I am. if, If you have a Google Home and you're already on board with Google Home, having Nest work with it is not creepy. Yeah. Seems pretty creepy to me. Well, you have a high level of creep factor going on there. <laughs> All right. Stuff that we're both going to be happy about. Apple Watch. So Apple Watch can detect early signs of diabetes with 85% accuracy. This came out of a study uh, that researchers at App Developer Cardiogram and the University of California in San Francisco came up with. They, they trained a deep neural network called DeepHeart to distinguish people with and without diabetes. And... Using the watch, uh, they were gathering sensor, sensor data, and they they were using it with people who have diabetes, people who do not have diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, atrial fibrillation, um, high cholesterol. And using this neural network, they were able to train it on these, these people's data, and they were able to figure out the correlation between diabetes and a body's autonomic nervous system. And so based through the heart rate readings, they were able to detect diabetes with 85% accuracy. Yeah, freaking incredible. You know, if, if yeah, pretty cool. you can, we, this is not the first time we've seen interesting things come yeah, out of exciting. Apple Watch with regard to the heart rate data, right? There have been people who have um, gone to the hospital and avoided a heart attack based on the watch telling them that something is out of the ordinary, right? Being able to predict diabetes right. with 85% accuracy uh, is is a huge thing. You know, early signs, go and consult with someone is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we Apple just started collecting the, the yeah. watch data for a heart study that they're conducting with Stanford Health. This, this is already paying dividends. I, I really think that we're going to end up in a future where um, you're going to see everyone wearing an Apple watch because of this kind of thing. I, I already know people personally whose doctors have said, we can put this huge giant monitor on you mm-hmm. or you can just go get Apple Watch. And they're wearing the Apple Watch now because it's literally helping their health. Mm-hmm. That's that's the Apple I like. That's the good Apple. 
Yeah, it's exciting. And yeah, along with that news, there's a, you know we talked about a glucose reader and we talked about a uh, insulin injector that that you had to wear and be constantly connected to in the past. Um, but there is now a uh, app called Abbott's Freestyle Libra Glucose Reader, which works with Apple's iPhone NFC. It's the first third-party application that uses the NFC chip in the iPhone, and you can use it to sync glucose readings. So if you're stabbing your finger and taking glucose readings the old-fashioned way, and you have this reader, you just tap your phone to it, and it syncs them across so you have the data in a useful collected way. Again, this is the kind of thing that I love to see. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, next up, we're going to be joined for a discussion about DSP and audio as we get into HomePod arrivals. Welcome back to this segment. I'm, I'm Victor, and I'm joined by Michal, the uh, founder of MyTech. And MyTech is a company that was founded 20 or more years ago for making technology for the recording studio. And recently, they've begun making consumer-level technology using the technology from the recording studio and making that available to the consumer. So thank you so much for joining me. Yes, of course. Thank you. What can you tell me about the things that you brought to the recording studio? What can you tell me about the, the technology that you used and how it changed the way that recordings were made in the studio? Well, generally, what we specialize in is um, capturing perfect digital sound. That's kind of how you can describe what we do. We generally, we try to figure out techniques of how to perfectly capture the original analog sound in a digital form and then how to actually reproduce it to basically try to imitate that capture as well as possible. So it's essentially about sound quality. It's about techniques of pricing microphones. It's about uh, loudspeakers to reproduce it. All this thing combined to create an illusion of the real sound that's basically recorded. Okay, so we we know how to do that. And we obviously were doing this for the recording industry for many years. And that basically results uh, in the way you listen to records or how they are mastered and so on. But also now we are using similar techniques to try to allow the general consumer to enjoy the same quality that they otherwise was available only at the recording studio. So kind of provide the way of experiencing the same thing that we experience when we are actually part of the recording session in the recording. Okay, and just to, to help our listeners understand, can you name some of the kinds of recordings that MyTech's technology would have been used with? Well, we, uh, we manufacture a very large amount of equipment, probably about at least 50 or even 100 models of different kind of mostly analog to digital and digital to analog converters that were used on almost every record that I can think of, every major record. It's Our equipment is quite prominent in a lot of mastering studios and recording studios and so on. As a matter of fact, now we are working with a company called MQA, which provides a way of uh, streaming high-resolution music, and that company 
basically works with the record labels, which will produce that high-resolution content, and our equipment is used for that. So we, you know, we have equipment that... Warner Studios, we have equipment and Abbey Road Studios, we have equipment everywhere and it's being used for basically project that comes along. Uh, we, Stevie Wonder owns some of our equipment for a technology called DSD, which is a special digital format that sounds very nice. Uh, endless records um, were made with MyTech. Uh, so uh, generally, whoever wants to have their sound represented in exactly the way they want, they often would use our equipment for that. Tell me about what is now available for the consumer. Well, um, we make an, a couple of consumer units, which basically can be described as a modern day receivers where you basically have a box that can connect to internet through a computer or sometimes directly and can basically stream digital music from services that offer that and uh, two years ago all Three major labels made a commitment that the stre streaming technology is the streaming itself is the way that they want to basically provide music to consumers. So no more downloads. Instead of this, everything's going to be streamed. So you have kind of an a la carte, large library of music, Spotify, Tidal, Apple Music. That's basically the future for the music, uh, for, for the record labels. And uh, the question now is the quality of this music of being offered and also quality of the actual transfers that basically end up on those servers. And we have started low with low quality MP3 and this is gradually getting upgraded to some formats that basically convey a better music experience and those boxes essentially do this. They will pull the data from the uh, internet and basically convert it to a rich, beautiful analog sound that you enjoy. And you can probably hear a lot of nuances and a lot of extra things that otherwise you would miss if you were listening on your phone or computer or what have you. So um, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's it's we are not unique here it's basically that's how it's done today but what we what 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 is unique about us is that we've did a lot of we introduced some of those technologies as the very first company to do that for example the mqa which is on title mqa format which is on title called master format and basically allows you to essentially stream studio master quality. We were the first one to offer a practical box to actually be able to decode it. And it's it's for whoever for for a music lover is an a special experience because it's just way 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 better experience than what you were getting with listening uh, to MP3 through your phone 
or a receiver or what, whatever you've made done in the past. We also compare it to vinyl. It is similar in the sense that the experience that you're getting from these high-resolution formats, it's essentially feels more natural, more organic, more analog, so to speak. It's less grungy, it's not distorted, it's a pleasure to listen to. So that's kind of what we do. We we make those boxes, and now we came out with a first uh, portable hi-fi system that we called Clef, which is basically a 299 portable um, um, gadget that feels very nice in the hand and allows you to do the same when you're walking on the street. So you can plug in your headphone and enjoy this rich, beautiful analog sound quality while walking around. Um, so that's kind of what we have now. And the uh, the cleft device supports AAC over Bluetooth? Yes, we uh, Clef is basically using Bluetooth up to Bluetooth 5, depending on what telephone is capable of. So um, you can actually use Clef in two ways. You can collect it with USB to a, to a computer, and basically when you're sitting at your desk, you can enjoy a very high-resolution streaming. When you walk around, it is converted through Bluetooth, so there is a little bit of trade-off there in the quality, but in all, because of the other techniques that we use, how we send it over Bluetooth, it's a very, very, very comparable experience to what you get with full resolution when you direct it, direct it to the computer. So yes, there is an AAC for Apple, but that AAC will depend on the type of the phone. And uh, so, for example, with the iPhone 8, you will get, uh, or 10, you will get Bluetooth 5, which will give you a little upgrade over, let's say, iPhone 7, if that makes sense. But generally, the, the, what we, in, in our work, what a lot of what we do is is based on simply subjective tests. We listen a lot to music, and our the, the practical assessment of the equipment that we make is basically ears, my ears or other people that work here, ears, and then we kind of compare this also with musicians and producers and try to get something that feels subjectively very good so even when we use bluetooth we can get a lot of very high quality sound from that i see and over usb the uh, the clef can also play back flac audio is that right yes uh, it can play any format so it can play flac uh, all kind all forms of pcm other forms of pcm files it can play the MQA format, which is this master quality format. Um, uh, if uh, some uh, some listeners can probably uh, understand the concept of sampling frequency, mm-hmm. where basically typical CD will be sampled at 44.1 kilohertz, and a lot of the masters that 
uh, you can stream from Tidal can be sampled up to 352 kilohertz, almost 10 times more higher bandwidth. And Clef can still stream this and reproduce it with this high bandwidth for basically a more natural analog-like sound. So, so that MQA master format allows for that. In addition, you know, there is a lot of other formats. For example, there used to be a disc out there called Super Audio CD that the, that Sony launched in the beginning of 2000, and it kind of was supposed to replace CD. It was called Super Audio CD. That particular disc used that uh, audio data format called DSD, which is also very high-quality audio, and the Clef can decode that as well. Okay, I see. So Clef is very interesting, and Clef is a product that we saw at CES, and I am I am hoping that we will get the chance to experience hands-on and review for our readers and listeners. It's uh, something we're looking forward to. Yes, absolutely, and uh, you know, and we are very curious, you know, how uh, listeners uh, will react to this because. Um, Generally, uh, what happened with portable audio the, over the years, over the, let's say last 20 years, since the inception, since first the Napster and then the inception of uh, um, uh, I, uh, iPod, it was uh, basically that uh, the quality was traded for convenience. And what we are trying to do now is kind of get back this quality without trading the convenience away. So we want the um, the consumption of music being very easy and convenient, but at the same time still providing the the highest quality that's possible. And there is no really technical limitations today to do that. Rather, it's just a frame of mind does the customer really want this quality? And sometimes we are faced with skeptics who say, oh, people just don't care, they can listen to MP3. But in our experiences, it's not exactly like this. Music is very subjective. It can move people inside to their core if they like the music. And the better quality of the music is, the more emotional the experience becomes. So that's kind of the goal in, in all this, to provide all this streaming convenience, but with the highest quality possible that basically represents of what actual musicians and producers heard in the studio. Yeah. And this is something that I think about a little bit, where, you know, the a few years ago, Neil Young introduced a, a product called the Pono Player, Yes, exactly, and that was very uh, that was very much the same idea, except that the infrastructure at that time wasn't yet ready for streaming. So uh, the, the 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 Neil Young box uh, basically was uh, kind of a high resolution iPod. You had to buy the music, download it, and then you could play it. Uh, Clef is answering the same, but for streamed music that basically comes from the cloud. But I, I would say that there was very, very uh, kind of everybody who works with music was very, very 
happy about the Pona project because Neil Young was able through basically the star power of his uh, and his friends raised a lot of awareness about the fact that we don't have to listen to low quality MP3, that we can enjoy music the same way they enjoy it in a studio. Okay, I think one of the difficulties is that a lot of people have never heard the music the way that it is in a studio and they, they don't know what they're missing. That's that's very much true, but but by providing a gadget that's relatively accessible, I, I, we hope that you know we can gradually change that. It is. I I agree. It's very. It, this is very much true. You can uh, you could use. Uh, I I my my hope is maybe in when I in this when I think about the headphone market. You could, uh, when you compare today's headphone market to, let's say, something from 10 or 15 years ago, there is much more better choices today and also much higher quality of those headphones. And that alone already improved the, the musical experience a lot from the original days when everybody just walked around with earbuds only. You, now you can buy headphones that cost sometimes a lot of money but they give you this extra experience that um, that once you try it's kind of hard to go back it's kind of like with wine or food until you try it you don't know what you're missing but when you did try it you remember it you know so um i just hope that you know that mod that model when you can stream music, who is now robust financially enough to stay around, and we only will see the improvement in both offering of the of the uh, actual, uh, you know, the choice of music as well as the actual music quality, and more to that, you know, I talk to a lot. A lot of producers and musicians, especially less experienced, um, new new uh, people who are not very experienced with the recording studio, they when they start working, they say, "Oh, it doesn't matter how I record because it's gonna be heard in on uh, in MP3 on the telephone, what have you." And we always tell them, "Look, yes, but if you want your music to be timeless." If you want somebody to come back to your recordings in 20 years, make sure that you do it very well. And I think that that if that uh, that rise of the awareness on the consumer side when they start demanding better quality will eventually also translate to overall better recordings. And we already kind of see that happening a little bit. You know, we, we see the loudness wars slowly dissipating. Apple had to do a lot with that, with gain, you know, adjustments that they introduced. And uh, so, so the future looks very good. I think there is no technical limits to actually provide the, the, the this high resolution experience. But uh, rather cultural and just you know uh, uh, 
systemic in the sense that it just has to start growing from now on, and we're going to see more of that in the future. Let me ask you a little bit about Apple's HomePod project. Now, I, I ask because we've been talking about it in news this week. It's beginning to open up for pre-order. It's going to start shipping soon. And it seems like they're doing quite a lot. Obviously, they have a digital audio converter in it. They have Wi-Fi. They have beam-forming microphones. And they're, they're doing some digital signal processing. Can you try and help explain it or put it in perspective for, for my listeners what's going on there? I I will, although, you know, I know as much as you do or maybe even less about what the actual product is. I, I saw some of the uh, teardown of the device, some pictures, how it's built inside, kind of get some idea. But, of course, until we hear it, it's hard to really make a you know, <laughs> judge it because in this business, you essentially... Yes, you can try to think of how something sounds, but really the ultimate test is just to plug the thing in and here is it either sounds great or it sounds okay or maybe it could be better. So we don't know that. Uh, I hope that they did a good job on the sound quality of the speaker itself, which probably is a little bit of a challenge given, given the size of the speaker. But nevertheless, you know, from the size of the uh, HomePod, you can probably squeeze some decent music. And, uh, you know, in terms of the other features, yes, they are very forward-looking and interesting. And uh, and definitely there is a lot of future in uh, DSP processing, but, but, the, but at the same time, a lot of... Um, uh, unknown, so to speak. Uh, it, this, this, unlike picture, the sound is much more elusive to judge. It's uh, you know essentially the sound is invisible. That's the biggest problem with sound, and the only way you can really judge uh, how it sounds, it's 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 your ears combined with some exp past experience where you can basically compare what you're hearing to some other experiences you had before. So that's generally what I do. And uh, and I know that in a well-executed uh, DSP system, you can do this and that uh, better. And we, we, of course, we're talking about room correction. Of course, we are talking about simulating stereo or even surround sound, we're talking about this and that. Those things are very much the result of how those things sound in the end would be how they were implemented. And I would I would expect that Apple did this their diligence on that, but at the same time knowing how subjective it is, I know that there'll probably be first version, second and so on of whatever firmware they have there before the thing is perfect, so to speak, or as good as it can, can be. So I, so, so in a general concept, it sounds really, really interesting, especially the idea that I could possibly combine multiple uh, HomePod speakers into some kind of a more distributed 
an intelligent sound system, and I'm very excited to see what's going to happen with that. Can I take 20 HomePods and, and put them around some kind of, you know, space and get this or that? That's, that, that would be something that I would be very, very excited to, to try and see what can be, uh, what, what can happen. But at the same time, there is this element of, uh, Siri, in other words, artificial intelligence in the speaker, which is the whole another story of how you can uh, interact with the system that basically doesn't exist in any of those systems that we make today, being basically uh, regular hi-fi stereo. Of course, we have Alexa, play me this music or that music. We know that, but I, I see this artificial intelligence element also transforming into bigger things where you can perhaps request a specific type of sound. You want to be in a hall or you want to be in a small room. The uh, 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 possibilities seem endless, but I think how this is all going to pan out. There will, of course, be some practical things, and there might be things that just don't make sense that may be going to be there, and then they will disappear. Somebody's going to invent something. I, uh, a question for you here, maybe, because I'm not aware uh, if uh, HomePod will be allowed to implement uh, third-party applications. I don't know that. So that's a question, and that's something that we're, we're looking at. But what, what I understand is that because it has Siri in it, that third parties should be able to use Siri Kit in their applications and in that way allow Siri to control them from the HomePod. Um, but at its launch, it seems like that's not going to be really there and that, you know, it's going to rely solely on Apple Music at launch for sure. Yeah, I'm, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that, you know, that... I, I see that the platform has so many possibilities that it's, it's easy to imagine they couldn't implement everything right away. Yeah. So, so I think this is, um, uh, you know, we, we are now, some of our devices already use network. So the idea that you stop using wire, you connect through network, you connect multiple things is basically uh, the zeitgeist of today, that's what we all are doing. And uh, I think Apple's going to set the mark and and probably when where we come in is either some devices that, you know, help the experience, things like Clef or what, what have you, but also possibly uh, more expensive versions of iPod, uh, HomePod, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that you will see that as well, because obviously as a big speaker will sound larger than a small speaker, you know, but move the, more air. Yeah. But this is all exciting development. Is it frankly kind of scary sometimes because technology is moving so fast that we all are trying to catch up. So one of the things that – there are two things that I want to tell you about HomePod that we talked about earlier with uh, with my regular host. Um, first of all, it supports a number of audio formats. It has uh, H-E-A-A-C. It has the AAC from the iTunes store. It has MP3, of course, and MP3 VBR. 
and the Apple lossless format. And none of those are surprising. The one that surprised me was that it also supports FLAC. Right. And and that surprises me because in the past, Apple has never supported FLAC in any way. Well, uh, it, not really sure of the reason why not, because but the it may have to do with simply the fact that they could do the same thing with their uh, codex on codex. But uh, um, I think, uh, um, well, there is an AIFF, that's the basic format uh, corresponding to WAV format on Apple. Yes, it's, it's, it's included as well. AIFF and, and WAV are both included as well. Yeah, and generally... Those the, the, those formats are basically the basic formats that the sound recording is done with. So, FLAC is that format basically com- losslessly compressed. So, the idea is that if your original recording was done on WAV or AIFF, when you do the FLAC, you really don't damage anything. You still preserve this original recording. And only when you start compressing to MP3 or AAC, you start losing some of the resolution. So basically, so maybe the the idea is to keep the the the, the purity of the original file, but allow for um, halving the throughput because FLAC is essentially the fifty percent of the size of original. And that allows basically lower uh, throughput through Wi-Fi. And that might be the reason why they would use FLAC rather than AIFF, for example. Yeah. The, but the, you no, know, that's, um, that's not really a question for me, I would guess. I'm just sure. I'm guessing. No, here. guessing is fine. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the other thing that's interesting, you mentioned the idea of having 20 HomePod speakers around and being able to use them in different ways. So far, what we understand is is that when you get multiples, when you have more than one, you can assign them to different rooms in your house that you name and right. using Apple's Home app on the iPhone. Uh-huh. And then you can send the music to the different speakers individually by their name of the room or multiples just by sending it to the whole uh, collection of rooms, to all the downstairs speakers, to all the upstairs speakers, to the whole house. Yeah. And uh, and that you can control the volumes and the different tracks to all of them through the home app. Right. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all works out in practice. But, well, uh, I mentioned this because essentially, you know, if when you look, okay, when you when you go to a concert and you look at the speaker array that's hanging there, that's essentially a lot of small speakers put together to produce one big one, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the the idea is that if I have twenty HomePods, it pro- I could probably do things with this that I couldn't do with one of them, which is I get more power, I get more spatial distribution because I can place them in different places. I can get surround sound if I surround myself with them, you know, things like that. That for. And those ideas are exciting to me, but I don't know enough about technicalities of HomePod to be able to to say that this will be entirely possible because one requirement for that is that they all will have to be synced up. They have to be somehow on the same, so to speak, clock. Uh, they, they will have to be in sync 
for this to work. And I, and I think it is possible theoretically to sync up a system like this, but I'm not sure if Apple did it. I think that they're going to do some of this because one of the things that they've talked about as a feature is the ability to place two in a room and use them as stereo, use them as left and right. Okay, which means that you, they can probably do that. Yeah. Because you will be, you will have to be phase accurate for that. In other words, you want to make sure that the left speaker is in phase with the other one. Otherwise, they will start canceling. Yeah. And and that's how you achieve the synchronization. So if they if they if they if they are able to play stereo, they most likely can be synchronized. Well, this has been very informative. I, I really appreciate you making time for me for this. Well, absolutely. I'm super excited about seeing this speaker and probably an avalanche of other speakers to come out uh, following it. And, uh, and uh, from my perspective, it's, it's going to be a, a huge revolution of how we listen to, to music. You know, I'm from generation that is still used to stereo hi-fi. <laughs> and this is completely a new thing of, of, of um, uh, is, is just much more than that. But I hope it can include the old-fashioned good stereo hi-fi in its features as well. I, I think so. And we're going to find out very soon, as soon as we get our hands on one. Well, I, I want to thank you again for joining us. I want to encourage my listeners to go to clefmusic.com, where they can find out more about the Clef product. And, uh, and I hope that we get the chance to review one soon. Well, thank you very much for including me. My name is Michal, and uh, I'm with MyTech, who produced the Clef product. We will be back next week uh, for episode 160. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can read my musings at appleinsider.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. All right, I'm Victor, and you can find me on Twitter. We'll be back next week with more of Neil Creepews. (laughs) 